Welcome to Bath and Body Parts. I'm Melanie. And I'm Cassie. We're here to help you relax and unwind. It's time for candles, bubbles, wine, and of course, a tale of true crime. So go on, soakers. Settle into the tub. Let your muscles relax and your heart race as we dive into Bath and Body Parts. is traveling to be with her family, which is very exciting because that means that I get to record with Skip. It's me again. <laughs> Two in a row. Woohoo. So for any new listeners, Skip is not only Melanie's husband and my other bestie, but he does all the behind the scenes work for the podcast, the music, the editing, production, everything. And he also fills in when one of us is unavailable. I'm just Mr. Do-It-All. All right, let's dive into today's episode. On Sunday, July 9th, 2017, police officers Megan Freer and Gary Forrester drove down a dark rural road to a plot of land in Solberry, Pennsylvania. They were looking for a local missing boy. Now, this was a very dark, heavily wooded area, and it seemed to be pretty abandoned. The house in particular was completely falling apart with no sign that anyone had lived there for a very long time and no sign that anyone had been in there. But nothing really seemed to be disturbed anywhere that they could see. Now, they did see a tool shed back behind the house, but they didn't see anything that made them want to investigate further. They saw nobody nearby, so they both headed back out to work on their patrols. But after just a little while, Forrester just kind of got that feeling in the back of his mind that he should go back and check the tool shed. It just wasn't sitting right with him that they'd left that. So he alerted Freer that he was going to go back, and he turned back down the dark road and headed to check out the tool shed. What he didn't know was that what he would find inside would begin to unravel a case that wasn't just about one missing boy, a gruesome killing spree. We'll come back to that tool shed, but we're going to rewind by a few days first. On July 5th, 19-year-old Jimmy Patrick of Newtown, Pennsylvania, said goodbye to his grandparents, Sharon and Richard. He told them he was going out to meet some friends at Chick-fil-A, but he wouldn't be out too late. He was just going to grab dinner. And I want to point out, this was almost exactly, this is one day from five years to the day at the time of recording. Oh, yeah. It'll, it'll be five years tomorrow. Yeah. Sharon and Richard went to bed, not thinking too much about it when he didn't return. However, when Jimmy didn't come home at all, they started fearing that something was wrong. His car was in the driveway, but there was no sign of him having come back. They started texting him around 2 a.m. and continued all through the morning. After 22 text messages, he still hadn't sent anything back. And this was very unusual for him. So they were starting to panic. And I think this is 2017. You've got your phone. You've got your charger. Right. Everyone's pretty much assumes that you'll be able to be contacted at any time, especially if you're living at home with caregivers. And especially as a 19-year-old, you know, Gen Z, love the phones. Oh, yeah. I, I would think something was wrong. Even like in 2017. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. 
Sharon and Richard reached out to Jimmy's friends, but they only discovered two things that worried them even further. Number one, nobody had seen or heard from Jimmy, not even his girlfriend. And two, there was never actually a plan in place to meet at Chick-fil-A. And I just felt like that must have been very devastating because, you know, kids lie about where they're going. And I certainly did do that as well when I was a teenager. Right. But then in a situation like this, you have no idea what to do. You don't know what to tell the police. You have no idea where he could be. Right. And even his girlfriend doesn't know where he is. So then your imagination just starts running. What could it possibly be? Exactly. So they contacted the local police at noon, but they weren't happy with the response. The police assumed he would just return and they encouraged him to wait until he had been missing for a full 24 hours, which I assume is just policy. So it's interesting because the more that we do this, the more we discover that it is actually not policy. And when the police do that and they kind of put it off, they're kind of just messing up, honestly, because their philosophy is, oh, they're going to come back. They're going to come back. They're going to come back. But there's not actually a policy in place that you need to be missing for 24 hours. They might have just seen it on TV or something. They're like, well, you got to wait until a full day cycle, which doesn't make much sense. No. Considering there's shows like the first 48. Exactly. <laughs> so you're already half Let's just done waste with half that. Of that. Yeah. So they waited until four and called again. This time the police did respond and launched a missing person investigation. They traced Jimmy's cell phone, and the last ping was in Springfield, a town about 50 miles away from where Jimmy lived. Richard drove to the area near the ping and tried looking around in parks and fields nearby, but found no signs of Jimmy anywhere and no signs that he had been there. He really couldn't figure out why Jimmy would have been there. And in the meantime, the police were investigating, but in the family's opinion, the investigation was moving far too slowly, and they really did not get the sense that the police took this seriously enough. So they conducted their own searches, they put up missing persons flyers, and they even hired a private investigator to look for him after he had only been missing for three days, which is, I would say, very savvy and good dedication because a lot of times people don't necessarily think to do that. They're trusting the police and they'll wait, you know, months. By the time they start, it's too late. Exactly. While the private investigator was conducting his investigation, another missing persons case was unfolding in the nearby township of Middletown. Now, here is where Officer Megan Freer from the beginning of the story worked, and she was responding to a call from Bonnie and Anthony Finicaro. On July 7th at 6.30 p.m., their son, Dean, had told Anthony that he was heading out to a gas station and would return in 15 minutes, but he didn't come back. Now, Anthony tried to text him, tried to contact him, and he couldn't get a hold of him. And eventually his phone was going to voicemail, so he was getting pretty worried. Now, he did wait until the next morning just, you know, to see if he came home or maybe ended up at a friend's house. But by the time the next morning rolled around and he hadn't heard from him, he was sure something terrible had happened. And later that afternoon, on July 8th, they called the police, and that's when Officer Freer came to take their statement. They told her about how Dean had not returned home and had now been missing for more than 24 hours with no contact with any of his friends. Anthony had actually combed through all of Dean's contacts on social media that lived nearby, messaging everyone one by one to ask if they had seen him. Everybody had responded except for one person, Cosmo DiNardo. 
According to several of Dean's friends, Cosmo and Dean would sometimes ride ATVs together, but that they were just loose acquaintances and that Cosmo was, quote, loopy in the head. According to our primary source for this episode, the documentary The Lost Boys of Bucks County. They told all of this to Officer Freer, and she tracked down Cosmo's family and found two separate properties, one in Ben Salem and also some rural land in Solberry. She also contacted the phone company and discovered that Dean's phone had last pinged in Solberry, right where the DiNardo land was. Around this time, the private investigator that had been hired by the Patricks had actually discovered that Middletown was investigating Dean's disappearance and was wondering if there was a possible connection. So knowing that she was looking for at least one, possibly two missing teens, Freer connected with Gary Forrester of the Solberry PD. And that's when the two of them took that 2 a.m. patrol drive out to Solberry to the DiNardo's land. Now, it was after 3 a.m. by the time Forrester doubled back to check the shed. I was very surprised that anyone would approach even a shed like that after seeing what it looked like. But if you're looking for a missing person, I don't know why you wouldn't check it in the first place. Yeah. Because it looks like where someone would be held if they were kidnapped in any in any movie it looks like the shed where someone is being held. Exactly. And, you know, had he checked it originally, he would have had another officer there with him. Right. It just feels like it would have been logical. But, you know, hindsight, I suppose. Hindsight. Now, when he opened up the tool shed, he saw a car inside. And this car was not a dilapidated old abandoned car. This was a clean car, one that had been left there recently. It was a 1996 Nissan Maxima, and Forrester ran the plates and discovered that the car belonged to Thomas Mayo. And he is talking about this over the radio with the police department that he's working with. And while they're discussing this, another officer from Plumstead popped on when he heard the name Thomas Mayo and said, oh, wait a minute, that's a missing person from our town. So Thomas Mayo and his best friend, Mark Sturgis, had also been missing since July 7th. They had last been seen at 7.30 p.m. That looks like a serial kidnapper, at least. Yeah. So, you know, I think at this point, there's two possibilities for them. A serial kidnapper or possibly these boys all know each other and have gone off together. Those are really the only two possibilities why four teens from different counties would be together missing. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. too big of a coincidence. So at this point, police from the various townships were connecting the dots. Yeah, they're thinking no matter what, whether they've gone off together or something sinister has happened, we need to join forces. And they are assuming that at least three of these are connected. Now, Jimmy had been missing for two days before the other three. His phone had pinged in Springfield. So they're not 100% sure that he's connected, but they feel like it's prudent to go ahead and investigate them all as if they're connected anyway. When Officer Freer heard about the other two boys, she's finally thinking, okay, this is a really big deal. I'm going to go ahead and go talk to the DiNardo family. And by this point, it's early in the morning, but late enough to go approach somebody. 
So she went to the home and been Salem, and Cosmo's mother, Sandra, answered the door. Now, she said that Cosmo wasn't home. He would come back later, but she wasn't sure what time he was expected. And she actually just seemed really worried that the police were looking for him. And it turns out there was a very good reason why she was worried. Because Cosmo DiNardo had a history that would worry any mother. He'd been a straight-A student in high school and had graduated from Holy Ghost Prep, landing a scholarship to college. He worked in his family's construction business and had been planning to go to school to become an orthodontist. Neighbors said that Cosmo was always kind and helpful, even earning an award for volunteering to help rebuild a church in town. So religion was key in his young life. After graduating high school, however, Cosmo started to change. In 2015, after a breakup with his girlfriend, he began acting differently and showing signs of depression. In February of 2016, he was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and dropped out of college. In May of 2016, Cosmo had an ATV accident, and he was stuck under an overturned ATV, pinned to the ground for hours. He sustained multiple injuries, including some to his head and his legs. He was left in a wheelchair for a while, and then he was on crutches for several months. Now, after his accident is when Cosmo's family say that he really started to change. He began to act paranoid and suspicious, started to believe that his mother was trying to poison him. And that brings up parallels to me with Tommy Gilbert Jr. I feel like he exhibited some similar. Right. So he had all of these problems. He got diagnosed with all of that stuff. Is that the one where he was living with his family? His dad was giving him money. And then he was like always complaining that that like the money kept shrinking. Yes. And then he came and murdered his dad. Yeah. And he thought that the roommate was out to get him. Yeah. And and he like thought that he was getting infected by everything. And yes, like the. He was germaphobic. and. mm -hmm. And that people were, like, poisoning his brain and stuff. Right. So, yeah, there is some similar stuff there. Yeah. Now, his family took him to get help, and he was put on antidepressants. But his issues continued. He started to believe that his mother was a Russian spy and that he couldn't trust anybody in his family. And these details come from an article in Philadelphia Magazine that we will link in the show notes. Now, one day, while his mother was driving him to a hospital to get help, he bit her arm, punched her in the eye, and ran out into traffic. And he tried wow. to jump into a stranger's car, and he was screaming at the stranger that he had been kidnapped and he needed help. Yikes. It's a lot of yikes. <laughs> I don't know I don't know what I would do if somebody jumped in my car saying that. I am really glad reading that that my car locks when it's in drive. Right. <laughs> because I would be terrified. So this is very not normal behavior. And he ended up being hospitalized and diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Now, he was released from the hospital, but this was not his only hospitalization for mental health issues. He was back in the hospital several times. He was prone to violent outbursts. The police were often called when he would start to attack family members. And it wasn't just family members. He would also be violent to the staff at the hospitals. He once threw a wheelchair at a nurse during one of his hospital stays. His father, in particular, was the primary source of his aggression. His father had very open, blatant affairs, and Cosmo 
would freak out about this and threaten him. He even once beat in the car of one of his dad's mistresses with a baseball bat. Wow. Yeah. We'll get into it, but I, I feel like it's the, I feel like some of the religious upbringing kind of got mixed up with some schizophrenic paranoia and, uh, yeah, I, I have a few opinions about that later later in the story because yeah. of more things yeah. he does. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath & Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. In November of 2016, Cosmo began seeing a psychiatrist named Christian Kohler. Cosmo told Kohler that he wanted to kill his dad and would hunt him with an AR-15. I, I assume he had to report that to police. Uh, as far as I know, no, he did not report that to police. I, I thought that if you said you wanted to kill someone and told them how you would do it, that that was considered a credible threat. Yes, but I don't think that our Kohler here is necessarily the most ethical of psychiatrists. Doesn't sound like it. Or the most trustworthy for reasons which we will continue to get into. Mm -hmm. Cosmo also once attacked his father with a brick. According to Philadelphia Magazine, he often told his mother that he was, quote, under spiritual attack. And she even attempted to have an exorcism done on him, which I'm sure was very helpful to his schizophrenia. Yeah. And the church was interviewed, the, or this Philadelphia Magazine article, they tried to get them to comment. The church was like, no, we're not going to talk about this. Wow. So was it a Catholic church? Yeah. Of course. Okay. I was, I was trying to think of a church that would have a church condoned anything like that. Exorcist. I, I'm also. I I guess. I guess they didn't actually do it because it only. She only attempted to have an exorcism done on him. Oh no! They came out. They did it. Yeah. Oh my god. That's not good. No. The exorcism was unsuccessful in relieving Cosmo's spiritual attack. Yeah. Apparently, Cosmo also told Kohler that he had thoughts of homicide and wanted to kill everyone around him. That sounds like the sort of thing you should report. Again. Again. Yes. Cosmo was put on heavy antipsychotic drugs, but his condition continued to degrade. Once at an appointment at Kohler's office, Cosmo started to lick the glass between him and the receptionist. He's just a real creepy dude. This is, yeah, I'm just getting some really creepy vibes That's now. That's my official diagnosis. Real creepy dude. Real creepy dude. His mom, Sandra, was having a full breakdown, begging for help. And Kohler changed up Cosmo's medication regimen. Cosmo would also often take to social media, posting angry rants or sexually suggestive comments. He would post guns for sale or other items for sale with bullets or guns in the photos. For instance, he had shoes for sale, and then he had a massive caliber round for a gun just sitting in front of the shoes. Can you imagine responding to that on Facebook Marketplace? Uh, I would not. I would, I would definitely uh, not. Report. <laughs> yes. He would also constantly 
apparently, harass girls online that he knew and didn't know for sex. Again, real creepy dude. Just real creepy dude. He also started selling drugs and acting as the middleman for go-betweens on drug deals. On his birthday in January of 2017, he posted two separate posts saying, birthday sex, question mark, question mark, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) And then my favorite one, who loves intercourse like me? Why do you call it intercourse? <laughs> like, everything about that is so skeevy. It's like a church Ew. dude trying to be worldly, oh but calling it intercourse. Who uh, should have done a birthday intercourse? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Maybe he right, would have gotten the two responses. <laughs> God. In February of 2017, Cosmo was spotted getting into a car holding a shotgun. A neighbor called the police and Cosmo was pulled over. And this was a big deal because given his medical history and his mental health issues, it was actually a felony for him to have a gun. So at least something came out of his medical diagnosis, even if he wasn't reported for saying he wanted to kill specific people. Yes, there was, because he had been hospitalized, there were motions put into place to at least attempt to prevent him from carrying weapons. And a diagnosis of schizophrenia and a head injury and all of these things combined, I would think. Yes. Now, (laughs) but... After he was pulled over, Cosmo, who came from a very prominent, well-known family in the area, was arraigned but never charged. So nothing came of this. Uh, That police not cracking down on famous or wealthy people. It it happens all the time. So often. It just happened in the John DuPont story where he contributed to the police, so they went easy on him all the time and just played everything Mm -hmm. off. So that was my thought when I was watching it was, oh, it's just a miniature DuPont. It's so common, and I think it is particularly unfortunate because he had, at this point, over two dozen police contacts. Yes. The police have been called on him many, many, many times. I noted that, too. It's not just like, this is the first thing that's happened. I mean, I don't know how you can get any more clear signs that his behavior is dangerous and indicative of bad things to come. Right. On March 16th, 2017, Cosmo visited Kohler, who noted that he had been off his meds for two days and was starting to get worse. But later that month, Kohler started noting that he believed that Cosmo's mental health issues were in remission and that he was getting better. What? What? I don't think that's how that works. <laughs> My official diagnosis of Kohler is that he's a real creepy dude. <laughs> Kohler is not, doesn't seem like a very good psychiatrist. So since he thought that Cosmo was in remission, he started reducing his medications to every other day. And in June, he said that the bipolar disorder was in, quote, complete remission. Again, I don't think that's how bipolar disorder works. It's really, really not. And on July 6th, which I just want to point out that Jimmy Patrick went missing on July 5th. On July 6th, the very next day, Cosmo went in for an appointment with Kohler, who took him off of his meds completely. I don't even know how to process that. Yeah. 
especially looking at the timeline. And obviously at this point, Kohler had no way to know that this had happened, but obviously he wasn't in remission. He knew a lot of other stuff. He's not better. He knew well enough to not do that. Exactly. Or should have known. Should have known. I'm not, uh, I, I have no medical training or anything like this, but it's fairly easy to find out. It just seems like common sense. And that leads us back to Freer, who was looking for Cosmo. Sandra, Cosmo's mother, told Freer that he was due back later, and Freer went on to continue her investigation. By this time, the police were gathering together to share and collate what they knew about each respective missing boy. Tom Mayo and Mark Sturgis had last been seen July 7th at 7.30 p.m., and their families had reported them missing. Tom was a diabetic, and his family was exceptionally worried that he was somewhere where he couldn't get to his insulin, which is super dangerous. Yes. The police returned back to the tool shed with permission to search inside the car. Do you need permission to try the handle of a car to see if it's uh, unlocked? If you have... I would think you had probable cause if it was a new car in a shed where they were looking for a missing person. I think, you know, I don't have the official answer. They might have just been playing it safe. I don't know. But playing it safe because the problem is if you misstep with a search, it would invalidate all the. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was something I had noted. I was like, why wouldn't they just look in the car in the first place? It wasn't even locked. I think that they they did originally. Look they inside the, the windows, windows enough yeah, yeah, yeah. to know that Just, there wasn't a body in there, basically. They were like, there couldn't be a body under any of this stuff. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the police returned back to the tool shed with permission to search inside the car. And they found Tom's diabetic kit inside. Mm. So his insulin and his needles. So obviously someone like Tom would never leave the diabetic kit. And so I think this is the big sign. There's no way he willingly parted with that because he cannot survive without it. Exactly. By this time, the families were in contact with each other, trying to find their own connections. And the only connection between the boys seemed to be Cosmo DiNardo. He loosely knew all four of the boys. Bonnie discovered that one of her neighbors had a security camera outside of the home. And she asked him... And he let her look at their footage from that day. And they turned this footage over to the police. In this footage, a silver truck matching the description of Cosmo's truck can be seen leaving the neighborhood at 6.30 on July 7th, the same time that Dean went missing. So police contacted Cosmo's family again, and he came in voluntarily for an interview. He said that he had picked Dean up and the two headed toward a party, but had gotten into an argument. So Cosmo kicked Dean out on the side of the road and drove off to go fishing at a park where he stayed until nine. I found that to be not a very believable alibi. No. Gone fishing. Oh, just gone fishing. Gone fishing. By myself. Nothing to see here. You know, I'm a teenager who posts about drugs and guns on social media but I I gone fishing. The investigators let him go, needing more evidence to pursue him further. But they also issued a public appeal for information 
sharing all four photos of the missing boys. And the case started to garner national attention. And then the media broke the story that Cosmo was a person of interest. And after that, stories kind of come flooding out about Cosmo. So there are sort of two trains of media rumors that end up coming out. One is that Cosmo always had problems, was always prone to violence, and others that he was more normal until the ATV accident. So it's hard to know which is the truth, and it's hard to separate fact from fiction when there's a lot of media stories coming forward and people talking. But I don't know. It's hard for me to believe that there weren't some signs. Yeah, I kind of can believe both sides of the story. Like, Yeah, I, I can see it either way. Like a head injury can really affect people. Absolutely. And can exacerbate longstanding negative tendencies. You know, I, I'm not a psychiatrist. And even if I was, I've never spoken to Cosmo, so I don't know. But, and we'll get farther into our thoughts later on. I guess my instinct is that I believe that he had these issues underlying the schizophrenia, the bipolar, and those do come into, those do come out around this age in later teenagehood. Right. But I do believe that they were probably exacerbated by the accident. That is just my opinion. I do not know that for sure at all. I mean, I think that sounds reasonable. Okay, Stokers, that's where we'll leave the story for now. Next time, we'll learn more about the investigation into the missing boys and dig into eyewitness testimony and possible motives for this ultimately tragic serial murder case. If you're a patron, you can listen to part two right away. Otherwise, tune in next week for the rest of the tale. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst. But most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath & Body Parts. Body Parts merch, snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to get started.